This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome back to the MLB.com StatCast podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, joined here by MLB.com National Editor Matt Myers. As we've said at the top of pretty much every show, this is not a show about stats at the moment. This is about us digging into interesting baseball stories. And we have a fun guest on to join us here. We have Ben Clemens of Fangraphs. And before we welcome in Ben, I want to briefly welcome in Blake Snell of the Tampa Bay Rays to express what we are all feeling right now. I need to play baseball. I need to play baseball. I'm so bored. I haven't left the house in like two and a half months. (laughs) (laughs) That was on the Rays. Twitter feed, uh, he was live streaming a video game. I'm not sure if it was actually MLB The Show or a different one. Um, I think he's, he's been man, in the, 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 sympathize. Show, the show tournament that we're doing, which is yes. been, uh, highly entertaining to, to, to jump in and, uh, and watch, uh, see the, 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 some of these players let their guard down a little bit. Um, I've, uh, I'm not even uh, like a, a gamer, and I've gotten a kick out of watching their reactions to, um, to playing against each other. Yeah, he was, as we all remember, live streaming over the winter when they traded away Tommy Pham, and he was not particularly thrilled about learning about that uh, on the air. But as you said, it is pretty fun to have these guys kind of letting their guard down um, a little bit. So yes, Blake Snell, God, I agree with you. I also am bored and missed baseball. And on that note, hello, Ben Clemens of Fangraphs. Ben, uh, big fan of your work over the last year or two at the Big Green site. Thank you for joining us. How are you? I'm doing well, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Um, Let's just talk briefly about Fangraphs, obviously a place that is near and dear to my heart, as I used to write there myself. And um, David Appleman, the owner and creator of Fangraphs, who is one of the best people uh, in the baseball business, has been kind of giving some updates and transparency about the the state of Fangraphs and how the lack of baseball is hurting the business, as I think uh, is not terribly surprising. Um, But I saw an update today that said the community has kind of really stepped up and supported the site. And that's really, it's cool to see, right? Yeah, we've been really pleased with the response that we've gotten. So I think three weeks ago now, David put out a call for more memberships. Fangraphs has historically been run largely off of ads, which is what we strive to be able to do. If you want to read free baseball content, if you can't pay for it, we wanted to have it. And that's still the case. However, the combination of no sports and no advertisers has been very rough for us. Um, I think... You can see the traffic numbers have gone down about 70%. Uh, David put that in his article today. And the ad rates have also gone down. And so we ran into a bit of a pinch. And we put out a call for new memberships. And people have really come through incredibly solidly. We actually have, we before March 30th, which is when we put this call out, essentially, we had 10,000 active members. We have almost 15,000 now. So we've gone up 50% in just under a month, which is incredible. That is great. That's yeah. really that's satisfying to see. And I, I, you know, I know it's a tough time for everybody to support anything right now. Um, but if, if Fancrafts isn't there when baseball comes back, I think that will be uh, just a loss for everybody. So that is, that's very cool to see. I'm happy to hear it. Yeah. 
I mean, I'm biased because I work there, but yeah. <laughs> long before I worked there, I would just waste away my work hours reading fan graphs and, you know, all of the baseball research that I did, or at least before the advent of StatCast was done there. And post StatCast, I split my time between those two. And so I'm, I care more about it now that I work here, but it would have been crushing to me to not have fan graphs even when I didn't work there. We we uh we asked you on tonight because you've written this really interesting series about wild World Series tactics, uh, managerial decisions, and lineup choices. And before we dig into that, I gotta I gotta put you on the spot for one second. As Matt knows, and as any of our listeners know, I have an enormous crush on Nick Anderson, uh, <laughs> pitcher now for the Rays. And I think you are the only person who not only rivals me in that, but surpasses it because I remember that early last year you wrote about Nick Anderson and I remember it being obscenely early. And then uh, about 10 minutes ago, I looked up how far into his big league career he was when you wrote about how much you liked him. It was 19 batters, um, which I guess means the uh, whole concept of sample size no longer exists. He'd thrown four games on the road, one game at home. And here's Ben Clemens saying, wow, this guy is great. (laughs) Nice job, Ben. That was maybe a little early, but he was just so ridiculous to start his career that like sample size matters, but he was getting, I think, 72% like a whiffs per swing rate. He was striking out more than half the batters he faced, and I had just never heard of him. Yeah, this, so, is what, this is to, for our listeners, right? This is, He was on the Marlins at the time, right? Yes, he'd been picked up for like next to nothing because the Twins had a 40-man roster crunch over the winter. Yep. And even he some of our he, for absolutely nothing. And even some <laughs> of our listeners might not even be that familiar with him because he was so anonymous because he began the year in the Marlins, one of the more anonymous teams in baseball, especially last year. And then well, and his name's Nick Anderson. And, <laughs> Nick Anderson. <laughs> and then he got traded to um the Rays at midseason in like a pretty interesting trade because they actually the Rays gave up a couple of decent prospects to get him, and he was what maybe one of the five most dominant relievers in baseball last year. And Ben, what like, was it just the what was it beyond just like the pure like whiffs per swing rate that you like so much about him? Well, he has kind of the new classic sabermetric pitch combination, which is a more or less straight up and down uh, fastball. He throws like 95, 96, and he's got a ton of rise, and it's almost, you know, straight 12 o'clock angle. And then he throws a, I don't know, almost a slurve, like a very hard curve because it has 12-6 break in the mid-80s, and they just play off each other pretty much perfectly, and batters just can't pick him up at all. He, it's a combination of he throws hard, he mixes the pitches well, and the slider curve thing moves enough. It just you watched him pitch, and no one ever got near touching the ball. It seemed like they they brought him in in that wild card game, so I was there for the ESPN broadcast, and it was just we were laughing in the booth at about how absolutely dominant he was. And I'm just personally pleased to see how well he's come back after missing those four straight free throws in the uh, 1995 NBA finals. It's, it's good yeah, that, to see. At some, point, at some point he'll get famous enough that that joke will die. <laughs> I know. <laughs> we'll no longer have to be like the other Nick Anderson. Um, but yeah, so anyways, as uh, Mike alluded to, Ben, you've been writing this series of fan graphs about looking back at managerial tactics and decisions from old, is it world, world series and playoffs or just world series? I am focusing on World Series. I mean, tell me how long baseball's out and we might go to the playoffs. <laughs> uh, but anyway, I I, uh, I was turned on to it by a friend of mine. A friend of mine emailed, emailed it to me a few days ago and he was like, oh, this, this series is really fun. You make sure you read all of it. So I went through and read all of it and I got a big kick out of it. And so we thought it'd be fun to have Ben on and we, we could go through some of these old World Series and, and um, at least a couple playoff games um, and talk about some 
managerial decisions that in hindsight look kind of kind of weird. But I'll preface this by saying that like I don't want it to make it seem like we're just like laughing at the decisions at the time. I think it's just interesting to examine in retrospect. I say this as someone who wrote a column for my college paper in 1998 arguing that Mark McGuire should not be MVP because Sammy Sosa had more RBIs and runs scored. So, you know, we all evolved in our thinking. And um, I think we should, you know, and I, want, I, want to, I want to put that out there in front, that we're not just like snickering, oh, these managers were so dumb back then. It's just more of like, wow, look how much the game has changed and how much different the, what it, the information we use has changed and oh, how yeah, decision absolutely. making has changed. Uh, yeah, also, that's true. I'd also preface it by saying, managers also made some pretty good decisions. Even in the 90s, you see stuff where I don't know what data they had, but they made decisions that would look totally at home today. And those are a little bit less fun to write about, you know. <laughs> but there are, there are plenty of teams that were just managed totally normally. There's a reason that each of these series isn't 10,000 words long. It's because a lot of their decisions just totally track. I've been reading these, and they are a lot of fun. Uh, and it seems like as you've gone on, you started in, what, 1990, and you're up to 2003. Like, even in that stretch, it almost seems like it's, been harder to find examples because the the managers have gotten i hate to say smarter but maybe more in tune with you know modern strategies like is that is that how you found that as you've gone on absolutely i think that you know moneyball came out i believe in 2003 maybe in late 2002 but it seems like the on-base percentage revolution had already happened in the early 90s oh man it was it was kind of the wild west for what people's on-base percentages were and where they batted and by 2003 you know, the good on base percentage hitters were near the top of the lineup every time. Yeah, I remember. I remember in the um, in the two thousand playoffs again. And the, a lot of it. This is like during my uh, sabermetric enlightenment period. So I'll, I'll date myself. So nineteen ninety eight was when I wrote that uh, the, the McGuire Sosa column, and uh, that's like. And then I graduated college in two thousand two. Um, I remember in two thousand, um, lamenting to my father that the Mets were were batting Bedeyang Bayani leadoff, and like Jay Payton was batting eighth, and I was like, well, Jay Payton's fast; he should be leading off. And he was like, well, I read this story in the New York Times. They talked about how Benny Agbayani has a much better on-base percentage. And that's why they're batting him lead off over Jay Payton. And sure enough, he had like a 50-point edge in uh, in on-base percentage. <laughs> and that was in 2000. So that was like, and that was like, oh, that makes sense. So you're definitely like right. And that, that, that even before Moneyball came out, that it at least it started been to like permeate other parts of the other parts of the game. Not yeah, just the Oakland, not the not just the Oakland A's. And Sandy Alderson, you know, came over from the A's. So there's some chance that a little bit of that had sprung in, although I don't know the exact timeline there. He wasn't with the Mets yet, but what point remains. Anyway, so what, what, Mike, Mike, how do you want, how do you want this to go? Well, I want to, I want to give Ben the first shot here because he's the guest and I, I have read all of these and there's like a ton of different examples that I find fascinating. But I think the one that's the, maybe the most interesting to all of us is you wrote about how Kirby Puckett in the 1991 World Series, uh, <laughs> a year where he was seventh in the MVP voting, gave himself up on a sacrifice bunt. And I would love to hear more about that because it just sounds so insane to me that why would you have Kirby Puckett actually do that? And uh, from what I read, I don't think you ever got to a satisfying answer. Yeah. So this one was one of the ones that really stuck with me as weird. So I'll set the situation up. It was game five of the World Series. It was the top of the fourth inning. And the game was tied zero to zero. And, so, two, the, and the series two. And the series is two two. Two two series. So Tom Glavin is pitching. Chuck Knobloch already on the Twins at this point leads off. Uh, gets on base. I believe he had a single. Let's see. Yeah, he hits a single. And then Puckett comes up and 
sacrifice bonds. Uh, bad. <laughs> bad. <laughs> so that, that's the setup. No um, run score. <laughs> no run score. Uh, you know, the next two batters make outs. And it was just baffling. So I, I read it. And so I thought, uh, maybe I, Puckett wasn't as good this year as I remember. Maybe he scuffled. No, he was great. He was, uh, he batted 320 that year. Had 350 on base percentage. You know, he was Kirby Puckett. He was basically his career line. So I went and watched the game to see if there was something, if he was trying to bunt for a hit, if he was, you know, dropping down an ambush on Glavin. He thought Glavin wasn't a great fielder, although I don't believe that's the case at all. And no, it, was, it made no sense at all. The announcers commented on how weird it was in 1991. <laughs> Do we have uh, any idea if it was uh, Puckett's idea or the manager's? I know that's always so difficult to tell. So in the game, which is the best look I have at it, I didn't hear them talk about it at all. And so it's very hard to say, but I, regardless of whose call it was, it just made absolutely no sense. It made so little sense that in an era where bunting was completely normal, people wondered why he bunted. And that was just amazing. The only yeah. thing I could think of, and this is like not a, this is not a justification of it, to be clear, as I look at his, uh, his, uh, his, uh, his stats from that season, is that... Cu- Puckett led the league and grounded into double plays with 27. So the only thing I could think of was they were like, well, Glavin's pitching. And, you know, Glavin was like, it's, I think Glavin might have won Cy Young in 91. Um, and it was 0-0 at the time. And it was like, well, it's a low-scoring game. We may, we need to get one. And, like, I don't want to, you know, kill the rally. Or maybe Tom Kelly, the Twins manager at the time, thought, oh, I don't, I don't want to kill the rally here. You know, maybe, you know, Chili Davis is up next and he's a better matchup against Kirby Puckett. That's, like, the only thing I could possibly think of but it still uh, defies, <laughs> yeah, defies uh, what, what we think thing. about. Can I, can I enter some supporting evidence into the record here? So this is game five, right? Two days later, they play game six, and the Braves are up three games to two, having won three consecutive games. Game six, if you don't remember, was the one that went into the 11th inning, and the Twins won it on a Kirby Puckett walk-off home run off of Charlie Liebrandt. So as I was Googling around, uh, I found a transcription of this video called Magic in Minnesota, which recounts the Twins' 1991 World Series victory. In the 11th inning, the bottom of the 11th, the Braves sent in Charlie Liebrandt, who was like their fourth or fifth starter that year. And as he was warming up, Puckett and Chili Davis uh, were waiting in the on-deck circle. And here's, here's a quote now. Uh, well, this part's not a quote. Puck, Puckett said he didn't think he could get anything he could hit, but he was going to try to bunt for a hit. And he told Chili Davis this in the on-deck circle. And this is Chili Davis's reaction. I said, this is Kirby Puckett. We're here in Minnesota. The opportunity to be the hero, and he is the hero. So I went up to him and I said, Puck, I got a better game plan. Bunt, bunt my blank. You get a change up, a good hanging change up, hit it out and let's go home. And Puckett says, okay, I'll do that. And then he did. <laughs> I don't know if that's like retroactive strategy towards another lefty the day before. Maybe he thought he couldn't hit Glavin and figured he'd bunt. I think people do forget that like early career Puckett was actually pretty fast. You know, he doesn't have like the body type you associate with a guy who's fast, but he got a ton of bunt hits earlier in his career. So he was probably a pretty good bunter. So maybe it was a bunt for a hit attempt and not a sacrifice. But I just love the idea that for this World Series walk off home run, he's like, okay, I'll just go crush a change up. Good idea. Bucket did have a career high eight sacrifice bunts that year. So, you know, maybe it was part of his mojo that year, but that's pretty awesome. Good on Chili Davis for, um, for, 
for uh, talking. Coach career. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, no kidding. Um, so Matt and I went and picked a couple of our own as well. And I, I stuck to some unofficial rules here, which was I was going to keep mine recent-ish. I'm not looking for like 1926 here. I'm not going to make them all, you know, when did you pull a pitcher or not pull a pitcher? And I didn't want to go to like super famous ones like, you know, Pedro Martinez in 03 or why didn't Zach Britton get into the wildcard game in, in 2016? Because I think everybody knows those. The first one I came up with, and I guess I like vaguely remembered this, but not really, was in 2003 in the fourth game of the World Series. And the Marlins had won the first game. The Yankees had already won games two and three. So if you win game four, you are up three games to one, which is obviously hugely beneficial. Uh, Roger Clemens allowed three runs in the first inning, somehow still stuck around to complete seven innings. Can you imagine that today? If your starter gives up three runs in the first inning of a World Series game and he still throws seven innings. So this tells you a little bit about what a different planet we were on. Jeff Nelson threw a scoreless eighth. Jose Contreras came in and threw a scoreless ninth and tenth because the Yankees had tied it off of, I believe, Ugi Urbina in the ninth. It was, a, it was this, this is this is a, a an amusing uh, uh, box score line. Ruben Sierra with a two run triple off Ugi Urbina with two outs in the ninth to uh, to send it to extra innings. I wish I like remembered watching that game, but I definitely don't. So it's a tie game in the bottom of the eleventh. Who comes in? You'd think, oh well. They have Mariano Rivera, the greatest closer of all time. You probably want to keep this game tied in a World Series game. No, Jeff Weaver, who had had a 599 ERA that year, had it pitched since September 24th, uh, somehow managed to get through the bottom of the 11th, comes out again for the bottom of the 12th. Alex Gonzalez, walk-off home run, game uh, series tied at two. The Yankees end up losing the series. I mean, that is a huge swing going from a potential 3-1 to Two, two. And so you think to yourself, okay, why? The quotes uh, from Joe Torre, who were the Yankee, was the Yankee manager at the time, said, with the Florida lineup loaded with right-handed hitters, he had no choice but to use Weaver. I don't get that whatsoever. Mariano Rivera, also a right-handed pitcher. <laughs> it is true that Mo had thrown two innings the day before. However, it only took him 23 pitches and he'd had four days off before that. And then here's like the real, the real chef's kiss quote here. Um, I had no options. People say bring in Mariano. I had no options. It was an extra inning game on the road. There was never consideration of other options. And that, I think, is the quote right there. Don't use your closer in a tie game on a road. That's kind of what we saw with Zach Britton. You would always do that in 2003, I think, and you would never, ever, ever do that in 2020. That's kind of like the distillation of just how much baseball strategy has changed because you let Jeff Weaver lose a World Series game while Mariano Rivera watched. Yeah, that's one of those where if you look through a decision and you see that quote, it's a good sign that it was a bad decision. (laughs) There are other decisions where people make them and you read their reasoning and you're like, maybe. But when they say the can't use the closer in a tie game on the road, then you know that it stopped there. um, That was... Sorry, go ahead, Matt. I was just saying, I think that like, you know, that the, the, the Zach Britton instance, which was the 2016... Um... Correct me if I'm wrong. Well, 2016 wild card, wild card game. Wild card, yeah. The Orioles at um, Toronto. At Toronto, they don't use Zach Britton. How many? It goes like it goes into like the 12th or 13th inning, right? Something like that, yeah. And who gave up? Was it like Ubaldo Jimenez gave up a yeah. walk off to Edwin yeah. Encarnacion? <laughs> I think after that, that was like like Buck Buck Showalter was so shamed after that that I think that finally managers were like, okay, I guess I really that 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 really was dumb. I need to start using my closer. Uh, in elim- in elimination games. Well, especially then, because it was like 10 days later that Andrew Miller was destroying the playoffs, you know, in like the seventh inning. So that was the real tipping point of, of baseball history for me, I think was that 
uh, postseason. That pitch, by the way, that turned into a walk-off home run was the final pitch that Jeff Weaver threw for the Yankees. And apparently, no recollection of this either. He, among with some other players, uh, was traded for Kevin Brown following the season in just a really weird trade, I guess. I mean, Brown was near the end. He didn't do that much for the Yankees. Weaver was okay for the Dodgers. Uh, but yeah, Jeff Weaver, he's he's been around, I guess. Brown ended up being the ended up being one of the goats for the Yankees the next year. I think he started the the last game, game seven, um, against the Red Sox when the Red Sox came back from from uh, 3-0 down. I think Brown started that last game and got lit up. Um, so yeah, that, 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 that didn't really work out for the, that trade didn't work out for the Yankees. Matt picked uh, a couple of games here and this one, I really find entertaining because he went with the Mets, which makes sense. He went with 2015, which makes sense. He went with a Matt Harvey decision, which makes sense. It is not the world series. (laughs) Somehow Matt has dug up game one of the 2015 NLCS against, I guess that was the Cubs. Let's hear it. I think it was, it was interesting to me because it was kind of a, a precursor to what would happen in, in game five. You know, the, the game five is famous against the Royals. The Mets were up 2 nothing going into the ninth. In game five, they were down 3-1 in the series. Um, you know, it was like, is, is Harvey going to come out for the ninth? And he basically, you know, told Terry Collins, I want to come out for the ninth. They let him come out. He lets the two, first two runners come on. Royals tie the game. Mets does the game. And it's sort of, that's, that's actually, I think that, that, that decision has become a tipping point. Similar to the way Zach Britton was a tipping point. I think that was a, a tipping point for the way starters are used in the um, in the playoffs, and basically, like you you don't see any starting pitcher um, outside of maybe like two or three guys get any sort of leash once you get the third time through the order. Um, but in Game One of the NLCS against the Cubs, um, Terry Collins used Harvey kind of similarly, and like gave him a leash that like is kind of shocking in retrospect, and was probably a, a good. We should have seen Game Five of the World Series coming. So I'll set the scene for you. It was Game One of the 2015 NLCS Mets Cubs. Um, the Mets are up two um, one going into the top of the seventh inning. Their number eight hitter Juan Lagares leads off the seventh, and he hits a single. So Matt Harvey's coming up. Of course, you would pinch hit for the pitcher. Bottom, he's giving you seven innings. Um, he's about to face the order for a fourth time. Um, but no, Khan set him up to hit for himself. And amazingly, John Lester was still pitching for the Cubs. The starting pitcher for the Cubs was still pitching. Now I will say that the Mets had gone righty heavy in their starting lineup against Lester. So on the bench, they really only had, they didn't really have any good writing options. Their righties on the bench were Kevin Ploiecki and, and Matt Reynolds. Um, so, you know, not great, but they had Michael Conforto and Kelly Johnson available as lefty lefties. Oddly in the previous inning, uh, Collins had subbed in Lucas Duda as a defensive replacement for Michael Kadire at first base, which is just sort of weird in its own right. Um, he probably would have been the pinch hitting choice um, <laughs> to begin with. And then Harvey gets the bunt down and Lagares um, steals third and scores on a sack fly. So I guess, you know, no one thought twice about it. I was like, oh, that that worked. But then you look at the way it went from there and the Cubs had number nine spot coming up to lead up the next inning, which was obviously a pinch hitter for Lester, Chris Coughlin, and then Dexter Fowler and Kyle Schwarber. Um, you know, that year, um, when facing the order a fourth time, um, my, Matt Harvey's OPS against was 754. You know, the first two times it was 563 or 564. So, like, it was clearly set up that he was going to get rocked. And he, he did get two outs, and then Kyle Schwarber hit one to the moon, and they took him out. Um so it's just it, I was I rewatched the game recently because it was one I like to rewatch games that I went to in person because I never like sort of experienced in the same way when in person than TV. So I think it's fun to go rewatch games that you were at in person to sort of experience it in a different way. Um, 
And so I was like rewatching it. I was like, wait, I don't remember this at all. That like Matt Harvey got to got to pitch into the eighth inning of this game, um, yeah. and actually hit for himself in the bottom of the seventh. Which I think to me is again, and this is only five years ago. And now it's like that just would just there's no chance that would happen. So when I was writing about the Cardinals, I used to keep track of a stat called Matheny's. Which is when a, <laughs> I love it already. It's when a pitcher bats for himself and then gets pulled in the next inning. <laughs> yes. And this, this is a great example of one. The Cardinals were at times bad about that, at times fine. But I don't know. It just it just stuck that way. Um, this one looks pretty bad. <laughs> Again, the Mets won the game, so I think that's also part of why, like, no one thought twice about it. Like, he got the bunt down, and they won. So it's like, okay, but, you know, sometimes you hit on 17, and you get a four. That doesn't mean it was a good decision. (laughs) Yeah, like, he got the bunt down, but, like, the best-case scenario was not that great. This was a good Harvey year. Yes, for sure. It's not... I mean, if you're thinking of current Matt Harvey, this would be crazy. <laughs> or even, you know, even 2016 or 2017 Matt Harvey. This was still like a year past peak Harvey. He was really good. But he was. teams would never do this anymore. I am totally with you. A fun side note uh, to this is that um, Familia actually closed out all four games of that series and did not allow a run. And um, it's uh, something that uh, our researcher... Um, Sarah Langs pointed out to me recently for something she's working on for another story um, that um, in uh, our story on Cubs.com the following July, when the Cubs acquired Aroldis Chapman, our Cubs beat reporter at the time, Kerry Mustat, wrote that, and this is another thing that seems crazy now, that um, Familia's dominance of the Cubs in the NLCS that year was one of the reasons why the Cubs felt compelled to go get a lights out closer. <laughs> Familia was so good that fall. I'm looking at it now. He got into 12 games that October and he allowed one earned run and somehow got hung with three blown saves in the world series <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> despite allowing one earned run all October. Well, there was that one game where Daniel Murphy let the ball go under his glove. I think it was game four, which was kind of a low key Bill Buckner moment. And then there was the, um, the Lucas due to wild throw in game five after Matt Harvey, that also was a, a quote unquote blown save that he really had nothing to do. Yeah, that one was a very tough blown save. <laughs> uh, all right, Ben, uh, you wanted to talk about Ryan Klesko, and I just am so excited to hear about Ryan Klesko. So I actually heard you guys mention Ryan Klesko on a podcast not too long ago, I think, just about how Thank he you was for listening. Okay. better than we thought. And he really was. He was a great hitter. Um, I, I knew that a little bit, but he has a career 130, 127 WRC plus hitter. He had a 500 career slugging percentage. He was just a great hitter, and I, I thought he was fine. Uh, in any case, in 1999, he was, you know, maybe not at his extreme peak, but he was really good. He was having a down year, largely on defense, and was still a great hitter. And he was the like heart of the Braves' order. So, game one of the World Series. This is a World Series no one remembers because it was a sweep that was just like not close ever. But it was close in game one. Um, in game one of this World Series, the Braves took a lead into the, I believe, the eighth inning. And so Klesko, not a great defender. Famously not a great defender. And so Bobby Cox took him out. He took him out for Brian Hunter, who was on the team as a righty, who could platoon with Klesko, who played better defense, or at least by reputation, but also probably played better defense. It was one nothing Braves. Greg Maddox was still on the mound, although it's Greg Maddox, that's fine. 
and they brought in a defensive replacement who promptly made an error. Uh, <laughs> promptly uh, made a fielding error on a sacrifice bunt that led to a bases loaded, nobody out situation right away. Uh, the Yankees score four runs in the inning, go up 4 1. It feels about how you'd expect. Um, and then, like, before long, Klesko's spot comes up in the order again, and he's not in. And they pinch hit Greg Myers. So they brought in a first base defensive replacement and then pinch hit for him before letting him bat. <laughs> not great. Um, he made an error. They took out one of their best hitters who would have had a platoon advantage against Mariano Rivera and basically cost themselves. They didn't cost themselves the game. That's very much like results oriented thinking, but they made a decision where in a position where you don't really need that much defensive help, they brought in a guy who made an error and who was a bad enough hitter that he had to be pinch hit for. It was brutal. And everything worked out fine for the Braves <laughs> in the end that year. <laughs> I'd like to point out something kind of insane um, about Ryan Klesko that season. I remember him being like, you know, um, a platoon type player that like, you know, he would they kind of hide him against um, uh, against lefties. And even that year, that year he had a, a um, 297, 376, 532 overall line, um, but only 466 plate appearances. So he was he was hitting against uh, righties uh, against lefties that year. That year against righties. In 410 plate appearances, he hit 324, 402, 583. Against lefties in 56 plate appearances. <laughs> you ready for this? He hit 102, 179, <laughs> 163. Is that bad? Because I, I don't know. That that seems bad to me. But but to Ben's point, the Yankees were not going to bring in a lefty in the ninth inning with Marin Rivera pitching, so he, he would have been getting he would have gotten to face a righty. And as as tough as uh, as tough as Rivera was against lefties with the cutter, I think I would have preferred Ryan Klesko up in that situation. So uh, the platoon thing actually came up later in this World Series too. Uh, Klesko got benched against Andy Pettit, which makes total sense. Like you said, he couldn't hit lefties. The only problem is Pettit got rocked. Like he gave up five runs in the first three innings and got pulled. And so the Braves had Brian Hunter, this guy they were pinch hitting for, pinch hitting for, playing first base. Uh, they had Jose Hernandez in the lineup as someone who could hit lefties. And he, he could all right. He's an 86 career WRC plus hitter. He, in, two, in 1999, was just okay. He had a 92 WRC plus. He, because Pettit left early, both of those guys stayed in to hit against righties. And they each had two plate appearances against righties, two plate appearances against lefties. They're bad hitters. Klesko was on the bench. <laughs> and he just stayed on the bench. He he could have DH'd. He could have played first base. He could have come in on, at first base after Pettit left. And they just stuck with the righties. It was... It was uh, they had a 5-1 lead, so maybe he thought it was like a defensive substitution that you didn't even have to make. It was getting it for free. And yeah, the Braves lost that one. I guess when we when we think of uh, you know defensive substitutions that should have been made that weren't, we generally think of Buckner, right? Like he, he was he was left out there because he should have. He, they wanted him to be there to win the ring, and then that kind of screwed up everything. And I think the one I'm totally changing a new game now that we don't talk about enough is uh, Andy Chavez not coming in in 
the sixth game of the 2011 World Series. And as I'm saying this, I realize I'm talking to a Mets fan and a Cardinals fan. And maybe <laughs> Andy Chavez stirs up some feelings uh, between the two of you. Uh, because Andy Chavez's entire reason for existing in the major leagues was to play great defense, as he famously did in 2006 against Scott Rowland, I think. And Matt, you probably know this better than I would. Isn't there an Andy Chavez statue because of that catch? Um, I'm not actually sure that's true, but I, I'm not positive. But uh, I'm looking at him now. Um, I feel like I should know this. and I'm sort of ashamed that I don't. But um, either way, I'm almost certain be. I read it before, but maybe there should be. <laughs> Although, I mean, the, the thing is that they they lost the game, and that's the thing. It's like it's one of those moments. It's sort of like the Rajah Davis home rough roll with Chapman, where it's like he would be like legend of beyond legend if they had won that game and won the World Series. But since they lost the game, it was kind of like right. cool footnote. But you know, yeah, in the like end, it didn't. One of the best pitches ever in the playoffs, but they lost. Yeah, right, exactly. and then Ben, I'm sure you have memories of the 2011 World Series, probably. Oh, yeah. Vivid ones. I mean, we just had Will Leach on this show, so we've had our share of Cardinals fans uh, lately. But for anyone who doesn't remember, the t- the Tigers got that the Rangers were a single strike away from winning the World Series when David Freeze hits. I guess it was scored a triple to right field uh, over the head of Nelson Cruz, who was like never really a good outfielder, even when he was an outfielder. And now, obviously, he's a DH. But what had happened earlier uh, in that game was that Andy Chavez, who was on the Rangers, had. Uh, he had pinch hit in the top of the ninth inning and then did not stay in for defense, which I'm not sure why Andy Chavez is even on your roster if he doesn't do that. And he had done that as recently as game two. And the best part about this is I went and I looked up some quotes from this. Andy Chavez absolutely believed he was going in for defense. Uh, he told the Dallas News in 2018, uh, I was giving my helmet to the first base coach and I was waiting for someone to bring out my glove. Then they made signs for me to come back in the dugout. I held out my arms and they made signs again for me to come back. <laughs> This wasn't like overlooked. This was like thought through. It's like, no, we don't actually want you out there. We want Nelson Cruz out there. Now, to be fair, it would have been a really hard catch. Like I know Cruz does not look good in this video going back on this. I still think Chavez makes it. And if and when he does, he has two of the greatest postseason catches uh, in the history of baseball. There's also a kind of an interesting subject to this. Ron Washington was on a podcast a few years ago. He was the manager of the Rangers at the time. And apparently he had three times called for a no doubles defense and it didn't happen. And he's like, if he has any regrets in a game full of them, it's that he didn't call a fourth time for no doubles defense. If he'd done that, then maybe Cruz is playing back a little bit and it's an easier catch. Or if Andy Chavez is actually allowed to go play right field, maybe he makes the catch. But those two decisions or non-decisions, I feel like have uh, completely changed the course of recent Major League Baseball. because. That's not never going to be remembered like Buckner's because it's not the Red Sox. That's not an error through his legs. But I really feel like if Cruz is playing back a few feet or if Chavez is out there, or especially if Chavez is out there playing back a few feet, <laughs> the Rangers win that World Series. Yeah, and I don't know that Chavez would have been playing right because they had Josh Hamilton in center at that point. So presumably Hamilton would be playing right and they'd have Chavez Perhaps. in center. Sure. But even Still better than, than Cruz. Better chance, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. It's, it's. I mean, it's, it's. It speaks to a couple of things, right? Like we, you know, it's. It's similar to the Bill Buckner thing, and it's actually similar to the the Matt Harvey in Game Five of the World Series, where like you know, managers, they they're succumb to sort of the human side of it, and and it's hard to sort of be like, hey, you know, I'm sure Ron Washington was like, I want Nelson Cruz on the field when we win the World Series, like he's one of our stars, and it's like, it's hard. It's it's really hard to sort of 
say that to a player. And that said, it's inexcusable that they wouldn't that Cruz wouldn't have known in general just to be a no doubles defense because Lance Berkman was on first base, and the only way he's scoring is if the ball gets over your head. Um, so it um, that's about as yeah that's that's about as close as you can come to winning a World Series without winning it. And, yeah, Mike, uh, when you sent me this one, I had to go back and watch it. Because at the time the game happened live, I was actually working in London. So it was, you know, three or four in the morning when this happened. I had very little memory of this. And I couldn't believe that Andy Chavez had pinch hit and been available to come in. I was just like, nah, you probably read the box score wrong. <laughs> like, I couldn't just, I just couldn't believe that they would have him bat. And he was ready and he was on the field and he didn't come in for defense. So I just assumed maybe he got hurt batting or something. It's, it's crazy to think about. His entire point of playing baseball at this point was just to be a defender. Yeah, I was I was pretty sure I'd gotten it wrong too because there's so many freeze great moments. You know, it's like, oh well, maybe this is a different one, and I'm still only ninety percent sure I got it right. But then I read the quotes, and it's like, oh no, he's specifically talking about this. <laughs> oh, that's rough. Uh yeah. Um, Matt, I know you've got like we've already talked about the Braves, but we we can't skip over the '92 NLCS Game Seven, better known as the Francisco Cabrera or the Sid Bream game. Um, we both have something about this one, right? But I think I think yours is more fun. So can we do yours first? Well, this is this is like legitimately one of my all time favorite um, baseball games, and um, in you know our uh, um, in our current quarantine, I queued it up uh, a couple weeks ago, and I was like, oh, I'm going to watch it. It's also it's nice on a on MLB's um, Vault uh, YouTube channel. It's also tightly edited, so it's like an hour and forty five minutes. So they actually like some of these games. Um, you know, you get the whole thing in full, uh, whereas the, some you come across and there's a little edit where they kind of take out some of the some of the dead time because it was a low scoring game, so there was a couple of dead spots. Um, and I was absolutely incredulous when I was watching this game. So it's the third, it's game seven, so three three games in Atlanta. Um, it is the bottom of the third inning. The, the Pirates are up one nothing, and the number seven hitter, um, Dame, catcher Damon Berryhill, doubles off Doug Drabeck to lead off the inning. So Braves have a rally going. Um, Mark Lemke, who young readers, young listeners may not remember, was like actually had this reputation for being like this super clutch um, postseason hitter. I can't remember what series it was. I think it might have been the World Series the year before where he just like went bananas and was sort of known as being just like a guy you wanted up. <laughs> it's like I'm like sort of laughing. Yeah, current at star in this series, Mark Lemke, by the way. <laughs> yeah, in the 91 World Series, he hit 417. Um and was sort of like I think he might have been World Series MVP if the Braves had had won that had won that. Um, so he comes up, he takes strike one, and then with one strike. And remember, pitcher John Smoltz is on deck, and John Smoltz had hit like one hundred and one that year. Um, Lemke squares around to bunt. Now, admittedly, it's unclear if he's trying to bunt for a hit or if he's being told to bunt to move the runner to third. Um, either way, it's either a terrible decision by him or a Terrible decision by the manager telling him to bunt. Um, he can't get the butt down. And then he squares around to bunt again with two strikes and takes a ball. And then he ends up grounding out to third base. The runner does not advance. Um, they do not score. Then the announcer at the time was uh, Tim McCarver. And he was sort of like hypothesizing, I guess, in game four, Smoltz had gotten a two RBI single. And that maybe like the, the Braves were suddenly feeling more comfortable with like um, – Smoltz's ability to either get a hit or at least drive a run home if he got in the third base, and maybe that's why he was bunting. But like John Smoltz was like objectively a terrible hitter. So even if you have, even if you have, even if it's a bunt for hit and you have first and third with nobody out, it's like 
it's not really you're significantly enhancing your your run scoring opportunity there by setting up a pitcher who's like a very good bet to strike out or hit into um, a fielder's choice or double play. Do you know what I'd read? I would Ben. I'm giving you an article pitch right here. I would read a listing of every time there's been a bunt ahead of the pitcher where the pitcher was not then pinch hit for just to, <laughs> oh, just to see like how often has this happened and has it ever worked out? <laughs> like what's, what's the, what's the win probability added for those decisions? Cause oh, it can't I'm be. Curious I have to look this up, <laughs> but then Mike, you had something from this game as from this game as well. Um, I did. You know, this is definitely indicative of the time. This would definitely not happen today. It happened in 1992. Doug Drabeck, who was the Pirates' ace, and he was very good that year. He, the Pirates, were up two nothing at the end of eight innings. Doug Drabeck was at 120 pitches on three days rest. Um, I understand that in 1992, neither of those things meant so much. Now, you know, there'd be like giant flashing alarm signs and armed guards coming out to get the manager if he was actually going to let the pitcher stay in. Did he win Cy Young? Did, did you mention that? I think he might have won Cy Young that year. Uh, he won Cy Young one of those years. I don't remember if it was that year, but he had a very he good in, season. He won in 90. He won in 90. Sorry to get that. He was fifth in 92. Right. So it's not that they let him. Well, let me, let me, let me restate that. It's not just that they let him stay in to face uh, the lineup a fourth time through in the bottom of the ninth inning on three days rest, 120 pitches deep. It's that they let him hit in the top of the ninth inning. This is a tight game. It was a, it was a two run game and they, they let him hit. And Doug Drabeck, you know, like most pitchers, was an objectively terrible hitter. They didn't score any runs. And then he comes out. And I, I have to say, there's, you know, obviously no pitch effects or stack cast or anything like this from 1992. But I watched this game, the end of this game the other day. And just from watching the bottom of the eighth, yes, he got through Deion Sanders and Otis Nixon and Jeff Blauser. But the dude was laboring. I mean, he did not look at full strength. And you get it, right? 120 pitches, three days rest in the highest of stakes. He faces four hitters, excuse me, three hitters in the bottom of the ninth, double error walk. And then he gets yanked. As you might imagine, this ends poorly for the Pittsburgh because this turns into Stan Belinda and Francisco Cabrera scoring Sid Bream. That's one of the most famous moments in postseason history. But no one remembers how they actually got two runners on base in the first place because Doug Drabeck, who'd been allowed to hit, was out there 175,000 pitches deep on three days of rest facing the lineup the fourth time through. I said they weren't all going to be like pitcher bullpen decisions, but I didn't say none of them were going to be. And this was going to be one of them. Well, when I was rewatching the game, it was sort of like, okay, Drape, really? Drape, I had the same reaction. I was like, really? Drapeck's coming back out? He gives up the double. I'm like, okay, now it's where Belinda comes in. And then no, then David Justice grounds one to second base. I remember this is actually, I was reminded that like um, Jose Lean was the second baseman who was like, you know, at the time, like errors was the only thing we looked at. And I think at the time, Lean had like, had made an error in like, you know, six months. And of course he makes an error. So then it's first that there was no out. So I was like, okay, well, now they're definitely going to take Dre back out. And they left Dre back in again to face Sid Bream. And then only then after he walked Sid Bream, <laughs> did they did they take him out of the game. A fun a fun side note, since we talked about him before, is that Brian Hunter ended up getting uh, – the aforementioned Brian Hunter from earlier in the show ended up batting. He was the batter before Francisco Cabrera, and he popped up. Uh-huh. Are you are you certain about this? And I, I asked that because there, there were two, were two Brian, Brian Hunters. Hunters. Yes, yes, it, I'm, it, it is the same. It is the same Brian Hunter. Yes, I, I actually just went and double checked. It is the same Brian Hunter. Because they also played like pretty overlapping careers. Like one was ninety four to 03 and one was ninety one to two thousand. So it's not even like you can eyeball that easily. But the other one was like a speedster. This was the first baseman guy who played for the Braves. The other one played for the Astros mostly, I think. Uh, but anyway, yeah. So he um he ended, he actually batted. He could have been the hero before Cabrera. He came up with um. 
men on second and third and uh, one out and he popped up. And then, of course, Francisco Cabrera famously came in and got the two-run single to send the Braves to the World Series. What I really like about going through this is kind of what you said before, Matt, which is it's not like, oh, these idiots. It's, well, baseball has just changed. Like these, some of these were perfectly reasonable decisions in 1992. And I wonder now, you know, if there's, if we're watching baseball in 2045, will we look back at 2019 and say, oh my God, what were those guys actually thinking? Like it's, it's just fun to see how the game evolves like that over the years in terms of decision-making. Well, going back to that, like um, the Lemke bunt before, right? You know, if, Let's say Lemke was bunting for a hit and he gets on their first and third with nobody out. I think in the in current day, short of Max Scherzer, Justin Verlander, Jacob deGrom, you might pinch hit for the pitcher there with down down one nothing, first and third, nobody out in the bottom of the third inning. You've got your already pitchers already giving you three innings and you're you're trailing and there's a good chance he's only gonna pitch one or two more innings anyway. Now granted was, I think uh, one out or two outs. There were, there were no, and I'm saying in a scenario in which oh, Lemke gets on base, you're first and third. It's bottom of the third, you're down one nothing. Your pitcher's already given you three innings. First yeah. and third, nobody out. I think there's a chance, depending on the pitcher, that um, you would pinch it. Now, granted, Smoltz was, was an elite pitcher in 91, so it's probably unlikely, even in now, a Smoltz level pitcher would have gotten pitch hit for, especially since in game six, um, Tom Glavin had gotten rocked and the Braves had had to burn through most of their bullpen. So like at the time, one inning for Tom Glavin. I'm not, I'm not taking Bobby Cox to task on this one, but it's interesting to think about that. Like it definitely would be a discussion point in the current era where there's no way it was, it would have been a consideration in 1992. Maybe if it was like your number five starter, but that's, a, that's about it. There is one more we should look at. And what I like about this one is that you both independently came up with this. Ben, in the article he wrote at Fangraphs and Matt, just in the list we were talking about together, the Mr. November game, game four of the 2001 World Series, Diamondbacks, Yankees. I'm just going to read the top of this. And then Matt and Ben, you guys can take this away. Uh, Tony Womack, Tony Womack let off the game with a single. He let off the third inning with a walk. He let off the fifth inning with a double. Every single time Craig Council bunted. Here's how that ended. First inning. Diamondbacks don't score. Third inning, Diamondbacks don't score. Fifth inning, Diamondbacks don't score. This feels like maybe there's a correlation between these things, but, you know, hey, what do I know? That's a NLCS MVP cred council. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> Matt, what do you love about this one? It's, it's, uh, it's it is, again, this was during my sabermetric enlightenment period. So, period. so I remember that at the time, like I just started reading like Rob Nyer ESPN and Baseball Perspectives. And there was a chorus only from this like, at the time, tiny corner of the internet that was like, the Bob Brenly, what is Bob Brenly doing with all these bunts? He's going to cost the D-backs the, the, the World Series. And this was also the game where Byung-Hyung Kim Blew the game in the ninth. Came in in the eighth. Blew the game in the ninth with a home run to two run home run to Tino Martinez. So the 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 D backs were up three one. So it was he gives up a two run home run to Tino Martinez, um, and then Dare Teeter hits the Mister November porch uh, short porch home run to to win it in the um, in I guess the eleventh or tenth. Um, but what I loved about this, I went. I was like, I wanted to try some trying to find some like some uh, some proof of what I remember of like. You know the sabermetric types on the internet, like you know, you know, complaining about Bob Brenly. And I did some googling, and I found this story from Slate from November first, two thousand one. It was posted. It was posted at noon on, on so November first, two thousand one. So basically, it was written at like first thing in the morning, written by, on Slate. 
headline, Bob Brenly is an idiot by Randy Jazzy Yearly. <laughs> and there's some, it says, if the Diamondbacks lose a series and lose a series, Jazzy wrote, and suddenly that looks quite likely, Byung-Hum Kim is going to be the GOAT, much like more, uh, is going to be the GOAT. But Kim didn't lose game four. Bob Brenly did, and it isn't close. Three times they got their leadoff hitter on base. Three times Brenly willingly gave up an out to move Wolbach up a base. In those three innings, the Diamondbacks got a double, a single, three walks, and a hit by pitch. Orlando Hernandez, the Yankee, star, Yankee starter, retired only five batters on his own. In other words, in those three innings, six of the 11 Diamondbacks who were actually tried to reach base were successful. But three Diamondbacks didn't try to reach base. And because of that, the team did not score a single run. Zero runs. <laughs> Ben, wasn't this, wasn't this the game that kicked off your whole series here? Yeah, I I heard on Effectively Wild when I was listening to that a few weeks ago that Byung-Hyun Kim had thrown 61 pitches in this game and then pitched the next day. And I thought, huh, like uh, maybe this was a year where he was a swingman starter because he, he started you know, decently often in his career. And I looked it up and he averaged like 20 pitches a game. And I just couldn't believe that that had happened in 2001. You could send a reliever 61 pitches and then just bring him out the next day and be shocked that he was bad. And he was bad the next day too. Uh, he looked bad and he gave up another blown save. And so I decided that I should write the series basically because I was so shocked by that. And then you look at this game and this whole series, honestly, and it was just crazy. Um, that wasn't the only time that Council bunted in this World Series. He also sacrificed bunted like leading off the first game, I believe. Uh, you know, like right after Womack got on. Womack was terrible that year like really <laughs> terrible um great player overall like i have good memories of tony womack but he, he had a 66 wrc plus on the year which is not good um not not what you'd like to see from you know your light hitting seventh hitter much less your leadoff hitter uh he batted 500 times it wasn't really a fluke he just didn't get on base enough. He had a 307 on base percentage and they just kept running him out there and he kept getting on base. It was amazing. He beat the odds. And then Bob Brindley kept being like, ah, you know, I want to give you that out back. <laughs> this was the, game, the series where Kurt Schilling kept pitching on three days rest for the first time and excelling. And, you know, Schilling and Randy Johnson were co-MVPs and they carried this team. But the offense just continually made these baffling decisions. Yeah, as as, a, as Jesse Early also points out in his piece, he said, Womack stole 28 bases in 35 attempts th this year, an 80% success rate. Um, now, 80% is a very good success rate, and it's the worst of Womack's career. At the time, he said, this is what he wrote in 2001. He has, he has swiped 267 bases in his career and been caught 46 times. That's an 85.3% success rate, the highest of any player in major league, late major league history. Yet instead of taking a small chance that Womack might make an out on the base paths, Brenly decided to have Council make a guaranteed out at the plate, not once, not twice, but three times. A little LeBron feeling there. Not too. It, it, uh, it's, uh, it's, pretty, it's pretty amazing. Obviously, Womack is remembered fondly because he's the one who got the game-tying hit in Game 7 against Rivera. So like all people remember about Womack and the D-backs is the fact that he got the game-winning hit against Rivera. And then also, Ben, you might recall, which I had forgotten, in Game 5 of the NLDS that year against the Cardinals, they were tied 1-1 in the deciding Game 5 in the ninth inning. Matt Williams leads off with a double. Um, Midre Cummings pitch runs for him. Damian Miller bunts him to third. Um, now Steve Klein's pitching. He intentionally walks Greg Colbrin. Um, so now there's first and third. 
with one out and Tony Womack at the plate. Now, Tony Womack, as bad as he was all year, he was particularly bad against lefties, 475 OPS against lefties that year. So I guess I can't blame Brentley. Brentley called for a squeeze to try and win the series on a squeeze. <laughs> Womack missed, and Midre got t- thrown out at home. So they almost blew game five um, on a missed squeeze. But then, of course, Tony Womack gets a bloop single. He of the 475 OPS against lefties all season gets a bloop single to drive home Danny Bautista to win the, uh, the NLDS. So Tony Womack was leading a charmed life in the 2001 postseason. Did you watch the, the video of this? Like, what was the pitch that he missed on the bunt? Was it something he should have gotten? I could not. I actually could not find that game. I was able. I, I found a highlight of the single, which was just like you know, your run of the mill, just bloop over. It was. It was actually very similar, similar to the Luis Gonzalez bloop single over Derek Jeter, just maybe a little bit deeper, just like a you know a, a dying quail into into left into short the shallow left center field. So, but I was not able to find the um the miss the miss squeeze. Ben, you have uh, written four of these pieces now, and they are chock full of these kind of things you were up to 2003 are you are you going up all the way up to present day is that the plan i can assume you've got plenty of baseball writing space to fill yeah i think i'll go up to present day i think i might start putting more into an article as we get closer because they're just less weird decisions as you go further i was a little bit worried that when i ran out of bobby cox series i'd have less stuff to talk about (laughs) he he was very good at some things and very bad at other things And that makes for interesting writing, you know, instead of just being kind of okay across the board, he would, he was very good at managing a pitching staff and he repeatedly got good performances out of closers. And he actually knew how to use his bullpen really well. I think he was pretty consistently good there, but then he would just make like crazy lineup and bunting decisions. So he was very helpful for the series. I was worried that it would get worse in the two thousands. Bob Brenly has kind of given me a, a stay for now. And I guess an honorable mention to the 2002 World Series. I don't even know if these are bad decisions. Barry Bonds got intentionally walked a lot. Like, was it like 14 walk. times in the series or something? It, I think he walked 14 times in the series. Okay, there, was, there was a game where his first three plate appearances were all intentional walks. And they all were like first and third with one out. And you're like, oh, I don't know about this, guys. <laughs> I think he got intentionally walked with a man on first and one out once. <laughs> they... They were very afraid of him. And he also, the thing is, he hit incredibly well in that series. It might have been right. He, his, so his, his line for that series was 471, 700, 1294. <laughs> 13, <laughs> 13 walks, seven of them intentional, three strikeouts, four home runs. Slugging seven. <laughs> no, slugging. He slugged 1294. <laughs> OBP was 700. Well, as, as Mike, as we talked about, uh, I think Mike wrote in his uh, drafting MVPs uh, piece with with Will Leach that he that 2002 might actually is there is there's a strong argument that 2002 is actually his best season, right, Mike? Bear Bonds, that was my yeah. argument. Yeah, Will Will disagreed with me, but Will is wrong, so I'm comfortable <laughs> saying that. 2002 may, depending on how you look at such things, you know, it wasn't the 73 home run season. Obviously, he hit only 45 or whatever. Arguably, the greatest hitting season of all time. Maybe that gets a little bit into park adjustments and everything, but obviously hitting in whatever that ballpark was called in 2002, very difficult. Um, I don't think you can go wrong with any of those peak Barry Bonds years. I do like that that year he had, you know, like a an okay but strikeout prone hitters line now, except in reverse. He walked 32.4% of the time and struck out 7.5% of the time. <laughs> What? <laughs> we could probably spend the next 10 hours on uh, Barry Bonds Love Fest. But Ben Clements, thank you for spending some time with us. 
Uh, please read Ben's pieces about World Series tactics at Fangraphs, and please read everything at Fangraphs. They are our friends, and we very much want to support them, and you should too. That is our show for this week. This is the MLB.com StackCast podcast. Thank you for listening.